And we are also continuing our series titled God with Us. In this series, we're looking at four different characters of Christmas and seeing how God was with them in their doubt. That was last week. Today, we're going to look at how God is with us in our broken heart. Next week, we're going to look at how God is with us when we feel lost. And then we're going to cap it all off with God being with us when we recognize even that we are sinners that God is with us. This is a great series to invite your people to. I'd encourage you to do that. There are invitation cards for this series um, at both exits. Um, As you leave today, I'd encourage you to take those. They also have uh, invitations to Welcome Christmas and then also New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve. Nothing nothing happening on New Year's Eve around here, no. Okay, today I want to share with you, as the psalmist wrote, that the Lord is with us when we are brokenhearted. That the Lord saves those who are crushed in spirit. Doesn't this seem like an odd thing to say? Because isn't it in those times when you are brokenhearted? And come on, I think if we are to be honest with ourselves, every single one of us have been brokenhearted at some point in our life, whether that be a relationship breakup or some expectation that we had, a really a job that we absolutely loved we got fired from, or something that we had pro- projected into the future and never came to pass, never became a reality, a, love, a loved one was lost, maybe we experienced the death of a loved one. Uh, everyone has experienced a broken heart. Isn't it odd? Because it's in those moments that we are brokenhearted that God feels furthest away. It's when we're in the pit, right? When, the, when we're standing in that miry clay, when the world feels heavy, that God feels furthest from us. It seems like an odd thing to say that the psalmist would say, God is near us in our broken heart. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote in his memoir, A Grief Observed. He wrote this after the death of his wife. He said this, where is God? When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate. When all other help is vain, and what do you find? You find, you find a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've felt that. He is yelling. He's screaming. He's grieving the loss of his wife. He's letting these these visceral, honest emotions of what he's feeling in the moment breathe. And, and C.S. Lewis did this for weeks. It hurt. And so he screamed into the sky and he did it for weeks. Maybe you can relate. Maybe there have been times that have been so painful that it drove you to screaming and questioning and you felt that there was a wedge drive deep within you and now maybe, now maybe you're just apathetic towards God. You're skeptical at best as you turned your back on him. You're here this morning. The reason you're here this morning is maybe because you're hoping for a revelation regarding the pain that you feel. Maybe you're here because you're hoping that there might be a word to speak into your pain to pierce through that pain, a light to shine into your despair and your darkness. And if that's not your story, then I bet it's the story of someone you know. Because we all know people who have been in these moments of great, great and terrible loss, and they feel like they've been pushed away from God, and that God is nowhere to be found, and that God has just been silent through it all. Two-thirds of the way through his four-part memoir, several weeks after his wife passed, C.S. Lewis finally admits this. He says that everything that I have written up to this point, that was a yell rather than a thought. 
You know, sometimes our feelings aren't rational. Sometimes they're not thoughtful. Sometimes they're just honest. And sometimes they're just raw. And you need to know that that's okay. It's okay to feel in those moments of great pain and great loss. Venting is okay. It's even actually encouraged in Scripture. If you've ever read the book of Job, you will know that he experienced incredible loss. As difficult as that book is is to understand, it's really just about how Satan wants us to draw a picture of God in Sharpie. Who who of you were with us last week? We talked about drawing pictures of God in Sharpie. Satan wants you to draw a picture of God in permanent marker. And in your greatest moments of despair, that is when he is going to encourage you to draw God in permanent marker the most. In your moments of greatest despair. He wants to convince you that God will not tolerate your honesty. That God will not tolerate your honesty when things are painful and hard. And so you should just be quiet about them. Isn't that after all what piety should demand of you? If you're really close to God, if you're really pious, if you're really a good follower of Jesus, then you should just suck it up, shrink it down, bottle it up and don't let it air and don't let it breathe. Keep it to yourselves. Because if we were honest with God, and here's what Satan wants to paint the picture of, if we were honest with God, if we let God really know how we feel in the moment of our greatest pain, then God's going to fly off the handle. God's going to get angry with us. He's not going to take it. The point of the book is really to put that picture of God to the test, that God doesn't actually love you, and that's why bad things are happening to you, that God doesn't love you. And the point of the book is to put that picture to the test. Job is utterly destroyed, if you know the story, and eventually, after 34 chapters of nagging and prodding, he finally erupts at God, and he starts screaming at the sky, and he starts yelling at God, and he lets all of his emotions erupt like a volcano towards God. He didn't stuff it in. He he didn't, in his piety, just say, well, you know what? Things happen. That's kind of how it was at the beginning, if you remember that story, if you've read that story. Man, you know what? God blesses some. He curses others. It's just what it happens. No, but in the end, he's just screaming at the sky airing all of his emotions, and God, we're told, introduces himself to Job in the form of a whirlwind, a tornado, the very thing that killed all ten of his children. God is present in that pain, and he's talking to Job through his pain, and he embraces Job, and he blesses Job, and he proves that this picture of God that doesn't love us, that can't protect us, that is incapable of helping, that is complacent in our pain, that that picture of God that Satan wanted to draw In Sharpie, that picture of God is inaccurate. It's not who God is. And the story of Job proves that's not who God is. And so, my friends, take your pain to God. God can handle it. Take your pain to God. God can handle it. He wants to help you carry it. So be honest with him. Shout and cry and yell. These emotions are are proof of a relationship They're proof of your communication with God. They're signs of an actual relationship. But you know what self-righteous piety that just bottles it all up, puts on appearances? It's only going to drive that pain deeper within you. That's all it's going to do. It's just going to drive it deeper within you. And so, my friends, let it breathe. My wife and I went to see the movie uh, I Heard the Bells last night. Really beautiful job. It's only in theaters for like three days. Uh, it'll probably be available to stream, but I really encourage you. It's a beautiful story. I don't cry often, but I was weeping at the end. And Emily looked over at me. Are you are you crying? <laughs> I do have a soft side, friends. You know, it doesn't come out often, but beautiful story. But a man who is familiar with pain. Henry Wordsworth Longfellow, a man familiar with pain. And one of the quotes that that he it, it was it was written on a piece of paper. It wasn't something that he said, but he said, "There is no grief like grief that does not speak." 
Man, if you keep that grief bottled up, my friends, it is going to eat your soul. It will consume you. Grief that we don't air will poison our soul and twist us into monsters. And that pain we carry will be far worse than the pain that we experienced. If we draw an image of God in Sharpie based on how we're feeling at any given circumstance, we'll always draw him through the filter of our subjective, irrational feelings. You guys need to understand that. Don't, God, don't draw God when your feelings are being tested. If we become convinced of who God is in the midst of our broken hearts, in the midst of our pain, if that is the filter we choose to use to draw God through, the wedge that we feel is, is you know, breaking into our heart, pushing us further from God, that wedge will become an axe, and it will sever our relationship with God. I know people who have walked away from the faith based on one experience in life. Does anybody know anybody who has walked away from the, the faith in God because of one experience in life? They abandoned 30 years of faith and knowledge and admitting the goodness of God because one experience they perceived to the contrary. Suis Lewis realized this, right? Late, late in his memoir, after the loss of his wife, he realized once rational thought was regained, right? He wasn't painting his picture of God in Sharpie in the moment of his great pain. Once rational thought was regained, he said this, if my house has collapsed at one blow, that is because it was a house of cards. And if my house was a house of cards, the sooner it was knocked down, the better. And only suffering could do it. I have gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. I said last week, and I'll reiterate again, moments of doubt challenge us to draw God in Sharpie, and I just want to encourage you to resist that. Draw God with pencil. Draw God in a way that you can edit your understanding of who he is and adapt it and amend it as you learn more of who he is. When we draw God with Sharpie, we will always draw God inside of a box. You will confine him to your own puny imagination. You will take the infinite, eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent God, the God who is timeless, his, whose, whose love is beyond our comprehension, and you will confine him to the little box of your own subjective, irrational feelings. Don't do it, friends. Please don't do it. It is our pride and our arrogance that tells us that we have figured God out. And then we feel justified in abandoning him when life doesn't go the way that the God that we have put inside our own preconceived box is acting. Instead of allowing doubt to fuel our humility and our curiosity and to explore as we draw God in pencil, which allows us to edit and grow and amend and change as we learn and discover more of who he is. My friends, I don't know why every heartbreaking scenario has happened to you. I don't know why every evil and injustice takes place. I don't know why suffering is allowed to prevail. I'm humble enough to admit that. I'm humble enough to admit that. I don't know why every painful experience happens. I'm confident, though, in my understanding of God to draw this much of him in Sharpie. It cannot be that God doesn't love us. It can't be that he is not for us. It doesn't, can't be that he is not concerned with our scenarios, that he doesn't care for us, or that he's incapable. Jesus proves he does and he is. God went to an unimaginable length to show us how for us he is. He gave us 
wicked sinners who spat on him and condemned him and, and cursed his name, his very life, so that we might discover life. And so one of the keys, one of the keys to mourning well and to receiving all that I've, you know, addressed so far is humility. It's humility. It's being open to the fact that you don't know everything. That God is infinite and eternal and timeless and his love is beyond our comprehension. So to confine God to a box limits him to our puny imaginations and expects him to behave in a very particular way. And you know what? We're always going to be disappointed when we do that. Because we cannot confine God to the box of our imagination because his actions are always going to shatter that box. But with humility, we can acknowledge that we are finite creatures exploring the infinite God. And so there's always going to be something to learn. Are you approaching God with open hands that are ready to receive? Or are you approaching God with closed fists that are ready to fight? Today, our character of the Christmas story is Mary, Jesus' very own mother. She was chosen to bear the Savior for a very intent purpose. It was because she was humble. There was a profound humility about Mary. We are told that when the angel Gabriel told her that she would bear the Savior of the world, she accepted it without hesitancy and simply replied, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Later, she said this, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. You see, God needed a humble servant to bear the Savior because the Savior was not what anyone was expecting. And if Mary had drawn her image of God inside of a box, she would never have accepted what God was doing through Jesus Christ. God needed someone who had not put him inside of a box or drawn him in Sharpie. He did not enter the world as people were expecting. He didn't live or teach as they expected. And then when he died, a sinner's death, that totally blew their preconceived notions of what the Messiah was going to be out of the water. But her humility meant that she could be adaptable and that she would not abandon Jesus or God when her anticipated life for her son did not become a reality. When Mary and Joseph present Jesus at the temple when he's eight days, you're eight days, you're eight days old as the law required, there's a man named Simeon there hanging out at the temple, and he sees the baby Jesus, and he says, wow, in this child, he prophesies, in this child is the consolation, is the comforting of Israel. And then, and then he grabs Jesus he says these words, and as he's handing Jesus back to Mary, here is what he says. It's so interesting. He says that this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, right? Nobody was expecting that. They just thought he was going to cause the rising of people in Israel, but nobody was expecting Jesus to live like Jesus lived and to teach like he taught. Nobody was expecting the Jesus that they received. But here's what he says to Mary. A sword will also pierce your own soul. The word for soul here is suke. We get our word psychology from it, but it denotes far more than just the brain or the mind. It literally means breath or life. It's referring to the total person, 
right? The heart, the mind, the strength. He's saying to Mary, your whole life is going to be wrecked by being Jesus' mother. It's a fun message to hear, isn't it? Your whole life is going to be wrecked by being Jesus' mother. You will experience a constant heartbreak by being Jesus' mother. And it was her, her, her humility, not her piety, not her strength that could receive this and accept it. Now, as a man, I will never understand the intimate connection that a mother has with a child that she carries. My mom talked often about how she had the sixth sense with her children. Does anybody feel like they have a sixth sense with their children? You can almost sense when they're in pain. You can almost sense when their hearts are being broken. You can sense when they are sad. It's this unique sense that my mom would always talk about. I imagine that's true of most mothers. And Mary carried the incarnate God in her womb. Imagine this. She, she knew who God was, that he was the very manifestation of love coming into the world, the very manifestation of kindness and peace and patience and hope and joy coming into the world. But here is what we were told about Jesus and his life regarding the world. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of suffering. He was familiar throughout his life with pain. Jesus was an outcast from day one. The world didn't accept him from day one. And I'm guessing he didn't have many friends. He was different. He didn't fit in. He was rejected and despised. The world, by and large, did not want Jesus. His own brothers and sisters, were told, didn't understand him. I always thought he was weird. Jesus was secure in God's love for him, and so it didn't bother him. He was okay with all of that. But I can imagine how heartbroken Mary was. Watching the son whom she loved, watching the very manifestation of love come into the world and seeing the world reject him, seeing how lonely he may have felt, seeing how kindness was rejected. He was never invited. He was always alone. And it was these micro losses. These micro traumas, they can add up. For, for many, it's not the large-scale, significant loss of a loved one or of something important that breaks our heart and often causes depression and anxiety. It's, this, it's the consistent loss of significant moments, a lot of little losses, that, a lot of daily letdowns that sink us low. You guys ever felt like that before? Been in a season of that, maybe? It wasn't some horrible, huge, significant loss, but it was just a series of little losses that brought you low. You know, I'm just coming to realize that over the past two and a half years, I've been in a state of mourning. I've been mourning the loss of what was, mourning the loss of where we thought we were going as a church, mourning the loss of loved ones. I lost several members of, several members of my family, including my own mother, over the last two and a half years. The loss of jobs, the loss of dreams, the loss of community and connection and normalcy. You know, every day having to guide our kids through, through online learning and, and, and experiencing the loss of normalcy in that. Every time I came here, I came here every single week and I recorded sermons to empty rooms. I was like, man, I mourn the loss of you all. And being with me in that experience. And then the world is going crazy and stockpiling goods and the economic turmoil. And what the world was becoming was crazy. And we were losing our sanity in the midst of it all. The world has changed and we had to daily mourn that. Every single one of us mourned daily the experience of the pandemic. And we may not recognize it, we may not label it, but we all lost a lot of things. And the grief and the anxiety began to bleed out in different ways for all of us. Maybe you experienced that. For some, it came out in anger. So for some, it came out in depression and isolation, impatience, greed, apathy, a hundred other emotions and behaviors. 
when 2019 was coming to a close, I was so excited for where restoration was going, for God was leading us as a church and what was going to be accomplished in 2020. And then the world stops and this tangible fog seemed to cover the world. You guys feel the fog? You guys felt the fog? Can't be the only one, right? Including my own head and my own heart and my own energy and my own focus. I felt that fog within me as well. I put on a face. I tried to stay strong. We kept going. But if I sat down with a professional and to talk about my life, they'd probably say, you know what? The fog that, that feels like it's hovering at times and feels like it's overwhelming at times and the fog that's causing your apathy, that's your mourning. You're mourning the losses. You're in a state of mourning. And, and the professional would probably say, Ross, if you can name it, then you can begin to manage it. If you can name it, then you can realize perhaps where you are in the stage of grief. Maybe you're in shock or denial, anger, bargaining, depression, testing, acceptance. Maybe you're in a reconstruction phase. By the way, these aren't linear, right? These kind of ebb and flow, they're, they're not like a, a, a line that you walk one to the next through. You can go into one, you can come back to one, they can cycle through them all. But these are all very common experiences held by anyone in grief. And only recently have I begun to accept what reality is. And I can honestly and commonly say that that fog, for the first time in a long time, is beginning to, to lift. That there's some sunshine breaking through some of that fog. And I'm excited to study again, and I'm excited to preach again, and I'm excited to come here and to lead and to teach and to cast vision again. It, it wasn't the kind of trauma that froze me, but it weighed heavy on me, and I think it did for all of us. Certainly there were traumas that froze us within the midst of the last several years, but all, for all of us, it just kind of hovered and lingered and weighed heavy on all of us. And the only cure for grief, my friends, is grieving. I get that depression for many is a medical condition, but for many, depression is the place where they just chose to camp out. Because we've lost something and we don't even know what we lost, but we're mourning and we don't even know it. But naming that you lost it, processing what you lost, and grieving what you lost allows you to move forward rather than camp out in it. It allows you to manage it and to see it and accept it and to realize that this pain is not going to last forever. Whenever I speak about grief, I use this analogy of a box within a ball inside of it. And there's a grief button on the wall. And during periods of mourning, the ball takes up the entire box. You get it. This is your whole life, right? All I can do is mourning, and that, that ball is just hitting that grief button, and I just feel like I'm grieving constantly. It's that visceral, in-the-moment reaction, right? I'm just, I'm, I'm just so hurt, and I don't know if I can ever get out of this. It's so real, and it's so tangible, and it's overwhelming my life. It's re- usurping rational thinking. My friends, in these moments, when your life is like this, do not paint God in Sharpie. Don't do it. Don't walk away from your faith in moments of grief. It doesn't make sense. You're not thinking rationally. This is why grief in the midst of tragedy is so hard and why it feels impossible to do anything is because your whole life feels like it's falling apart. Every action, every memory, every thought amplifies your pain in those moments. But in time, the ball begins to shrink and feels more manageable, though it will never completely be gone. That loss will go with you forever. You're a changed person, and this grief is love persevering. Not everything is a remembrance, and not everything is a painful experience, but that ball, you're going to notice, is going to begin to bounce around that box, the box of your life. And for many who have gone through great loss and pain, you know that at seemingly random times, waves of grief 
and, and waves of pain. You don't even know where they come from. You're driving down the road and all of a sudden you were overwhelmed with emotion. I remember when my mom died, I was walking down the road one day and I was just like, this overwhelming emotion came out of nowhere. Like, what, what happened? I don't know. You know what happened? The grief button was hit. And I don't know why, it's just random sometimes and I get overwhelmed with grief and it's sad in those moments. And then there are times when the ball begins to grow again. You know, around the holidays, anniversaries, birthdays, Tuesdays. A friend of mine, no, a friend of mine just posted on Facebook a couple weeks ago of how she hates Tuesdays. Because on the 22nd of every month, and she also hates Thanksgiving because she lost her child six years ago on a Tuesday, the 22nd of November, the week of Thanksgiving. So she doesn't know every Tuesday that, that ball takes over the, the, the room. Every, every Thanksgiving, it takes over the room. The 22nd of every month takes over the room. And that's just her life. It shrinks back down, but it's never quite the same. You see, Mary was going to experience a life full of micro-tragedy as she saw the world reject her son, the manifestation of love and kindness. But she was also going to watch her son die. The manifestation of love was going to die, and she undoubtedly experienced an earth-shattering, heart-ripping apart and being beaten on the floor, tragedy in his suffering and in his death. We're not told what her reaction is in scripture, but you can maybe just imagine, right? The, the visceral reaction of watching her son, the manifestation of love being beaten and abused and mocked and it had to be heartbreaking. And it's here in this expression of grief that we see how and why God came near the world. I want you to realize that when you mourn, that you are actually agreeing with God that your experience upon this planet and that the world is not right, that the world is broken. Grief is an expression. It's a shout. It's a cry from our heart that the world is broken. And we get to choose then how we respond in the face of grief. I remember on the evening of September 11th, maybe some of you realize this as well, 2001, right? We, it's, it's a day that the, the world still grieves and we still mourn over this experience. But President George Bush told the world to go shopping and he told the world to go to Disney World. Certainly he was you know, trying to curb the reeling economy after this experience, but he was also hoping that we would just cope with the pain and the grief that we were experienced with. Coping is natural in the face of pain, and many then turn to drinking and shopping and Disney World as a way just to evade the pain. We binge watch and we eat or we shop or whatever it may be, right? We do a million different things in hopes to numb the pain that they're feeling. But I need you to realize that when we cope in these ways, we are merely pretending that the pain isn't true. We're just putting a mask on it. We're just, we're just dressing it up. We're trying to get over it. Coping in these ways walls ourselves off from the pain and turns our backs to evade the hurt. It's like chasing sundown. Always running towards the sun, clinging to remnants of light that are destined to die over the horizon. The sun is always going to outpace us. And so eventually it will always leave us in the dark, hopeless and in despair and wandering and wondering as the darkness overwhelms us. But my friends, there's another way. And it's the way of God through Jesus. You see, God mourns over the world too, right? In the story of uh, Jesus and Lazarus, God weeps with his friend. When Jesus saw how selfish, sinful state of Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem. God is not inept. God is not apathetic. God is love, and through his love, he turned towards the pain 
of his broken world and he stepped into the pain of his broken world. See, when you turn into the darkness of your pain, eventually you will feel the warmth of the sun as it rises again. Instead of chasing the dusk, an effort that will always eventually leave you hopeless and in the dark, God and Jesus turned to face the darkness. God waded into our pain. God embraced our pain. God carried our pain. He called it what it is, right? The darkness, yes, can be scary. In the darkness is when we cry out and we yell and we scream. That's where honesty comes from. That visceral emotion comes out in the dark. Fear comes out in the darkness. And all of those are welcomed and they are important. But you need to know that when you turn to face the dark and you embrace the darkness, the darkness will not last forever. You can either evade the loss and live in perpetual wandering in the dark, trying faulty solutions as you frantically chase the sunset. Or you can embrace the loss and eventually find healing with the new day. Evading the loss won't change your reality. You need to know that. Evading the loss will not change your reality. It will typically leave you wallowing in your self-pity. But embracing the loss, wading into the darkness that does in, does in fact, yes, last for a time, it will always move you towards a new reality. The sun, my friends, is going to rise again. As Emily and I processed this, this past week together, here are just a couple of the questions that came out of our processing, and I, I think some of these questions just might help you move forward if you're in a time of mourning. What cemetery, you know, what death, what loss... Am I hanging out in instead of choosing to live fully alive? Do you recognize that maybe you're chasing the sunset? That you're living in the cemetery? That you're living in the loss and you've chosen to camp there? What yes do you need to embrace to begin walking? Is it therapy? Or AA or grief care, divorce care, forgiveness? God, certainly God, yes. What yes do you need to embrace to begin walking out of that cemetery? And if I stay here in the cemetery, what kind of person am I going to become? You guys ever thought about that? Look past this moment right here. If I stay here, who am I going to become? And then who do I want to be? Do I, do I want to be this person who is just weighed down by my, my grief? Or do I want to live fully alive? Who do I want to become on the other side of this broken heart? I'm going to invite Emily forward. We're going to sing a song together as somewhat of a prayer, somewhat of a cry as we conclude our time together this morning. But I want, I want to close with this. I read this story this past week. Maybe some of you read it as well. Um, it was about a boy in Milwaukee. Does anybody know where I'm going with this? All right, so this is kind of a hard story to hear. So it's about a boy in Milwaukee. He wanted an Oculus for Christmas. And his mom said no. Sorry, you're not getting an Oculus. And so this boy went into his mom's nightstand. He pulled a gun and he shot and killed his mother. And then he took her wallet from her pocket, took her credit card out, went on Amazon and ordered himself an Oculus. And the reason I tell you that story is because every time I read something like this, I remember that the world is broken. And I mourn the state of our fallen world and the condition of humanity. But it also reminds me that though this, yes, is an extreme behavior, 
It begins as a singular selfish thought that grew unrestained into a monstrous action. And did you know that all of us have unrestrained selfish thoughts in us? So much of this world requires our mourning. Yes, when our heart is broken, when we experience significant loss, the micro losses, yes, they can pile up. But I also need to mourn the condition of humanity as a whole, and I also need to mourn the condition of my own heart. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, who recognize and agree that the world is broken. Why? Because they will be comforted. Or, as the Ross Manders translation says, for only they can see that Jesus matters. Blessed are those who mourn, for only they can see why Jesus matters. See, Mary was told from Gabriel to name the baby Jesus because he would take away the sin of the world, that he would wipe every tear from every eye, that he would present a day and create a day where there is no mourning or pain for all of that had been done away with. And she had no idea that would entail, other than the solution to the world's mourning would be Jesus. She had no idea that he would have to suffer so terribly because of it, that he would be rejected so terribly because of it, but she accepted it and all that would come with it because of her humility. And Scripture tells us this in Paul's letter to the Romans. While the world was still broken, while humanity was still a mess, while we were still mourning and grieving because of sin and what sin had done, God proved he loved us through Christ's death on our behalf. And now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because what the law was powerless to do, God did by nailing sin and the brokenness of the world to the cross and the flesh of Jesus. And in exchange, he has granted us by grace the gift of his Holy Spirit in order that we would be healed and overflowing with love. Humans have a proclivity to hurting one another, friends. We're always going to be mourning. We're always going to be grieving. The world is sinful. Death has ultimately, yes, been defeated, but creation is not remade. Pain and loss will always be part of our story. And so you can choose what you want to do with that. Do you want to find healing in Jesus Christ or do you want to try to do it yourself? My hope is that you would call out to the God who is with you, who is weeping with you, who is in it with you, and ultimately wants to carry you out of it. But ultimately, at the end of the day, my friends, the choice is up to us.